Amen. Good morning. It is a happy new year, and it's great to be in God's house. Do you realize this is the first time in three weeks it's been sort of normal around here? We didn't have services on Christmas Day, obviously, and then New Year's Day last week was just one service at 10 o'clock. So for the first time since December the 18th, we've got the 9 and 11 thing going. So I'm like, okay, I think I'm back in rhythm now a little bit. Uh, I'm sure you feel that way after the holidays. It sort of takes you a little while to get back into the rhythm of life. And that's where we are. Hey, a couple things before the message this morning, too, just to remind you about that next month, uh, the youth retreat, and I think the youth registration for that retreat just went live last week. So parents of youth and, and teenagers, we would love for you to be a part of our youth retreat this year. It gets bigger and bigger every year. Uh, please check that out. And then the women's retreat is at the end of February, and they have a few spaces left as well. So gals, if you want to be a part of the women's retreat, you need to sign up quickly for that. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25 this morning, as we look at the story of Jesus once again, and it's already been shared by, by Mike and even Nicole mentioned it, that the story of Jesus is a story of devotion. Let's start with Jesus himself. Jesus modeled the fact that when he came to earth, he was absolutely, completely, and utterly devoted to the will of his Father. Even in the garden, he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And the Bible tells us that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the Father's will, even to the death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. So Jesus, his whole life, was an example and model of devotion. And as followers of Jesus Christ, our life should be an example and model of devotion. And we said last week, that our devotion should be seen in our devotion to the Word of God, to the Spirit of God, and to the house of God. And all of us need to come to terms with what does that look like for me in my life. And, and I believe that God, by timing that message at the very beginning of this year, was very strategic and intentional even for us as a church. I think he was saying to all of us here at the Oasis, this is a year where I am calling the people of the Oasis to a greater and deeper devotion to me. Now, at the end of that message last week, we saw that story, maybe the one story about Jesus when he wasn't a little baby and he wasn't just born and before he started his ministry where he was this young man and he got separated from his parents. His parents were freaking out. They come back to Jerusalem and they find him at his father's house. And Jesus even said, when Mary sort of was saying, Jesus, yeah, we've been worried about you and all of this that Jesus says, Weren't you aware by now that I must be in my father's house? That even again, Jesus 
showed that devotion to his father's house and being in the house of God on a regular and consistent basis. And Jesus uses the phrase, I must, I must be in my father's house. It is a non-negotiable. For Jesus, there were a few musts. Other things could be bargained with or negotiated with, but, but there were a few things that Jesus in his own life and how he taught his followers that should be absolute musts. And we're going to look at two of them today in this passage. One is, is expressed in the story that surrounds a very familiar passage of Scripture, the story of the Good Samaritan. And then another must comes out of the story of Jesus in the house of Mary and Martha. So I want to begin this morning in Luke chapter 10, looking at verse 25, and I want you to be thinking again about what is the must that Jesus is teaching through these passages of Scripture. You'll notice in verse 25, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. So we know that this man's intentions were not totally pure in what he was about to ask Jesus. And I want to define this expert in religious law this way so that you and I in our day and age can understand it. This would have been a theology professor Okay, this would have been somebody that taught theology in a seminary, somebody who had degrees after his name, right? And he comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was actually a common question in Jesus's day this was a question that was on the minds of many you see this even throughout scripture later on in Luke chapter 18 this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life you know what all of us should be considering that question that's a pretty important question what do I need to do to obtain or possess or to have eternal life? I mean, could there be a more important, significant question? Could there be a greater, you know, answer than what Jesus is about to give? And notice Jesus' answer. What's he do with this man? He points him to Scripture. Oh. That's what we all should be doing with people. When they have questions, we should be pointing them back to the Bible, which is one reason why then it's important for us to be devoted to the Scriptures ourselves and to studying them and reading them and meditating on them and understanding them because how can we point others to that which we don't know ourselves? The more Scripture we know the more we can be a help and encouragement to others, 
because we know then the Word of God and we know where to take people and point them to in order to get the answers that they're looking for. So he said, what is written in the law or in the scriptures? And the man, and then Jesus goes on to say, how do you understand it or how do you interpret it? And Jesus then is waiting for the answer from this theology professor. Well, the expert answered. He said, well, Jesus, if I had to come up with an answer to that, I would say this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty good answer. And Jesus even said, you have answered correctly. So do this and you will live. Do this, and you will live. Continually practice selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love, perfectly and without fail, and you'll be good enough to inherit eternal life. Now notice something here, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But I want you to see it or begin to see it at this point if you haven't already seen it. And that is the reply of this theology professor shows that the issue that he has is not so much with his head, but with his heart. There's not a deficiency in his understanding and his knowledge of the scriptures. If anybody can give the right answers to the questions that Jesus poses to them, he did it. In fact, he gives all the right answers, but all those right answers do not gain him eternal life. You and I have to be careful of that. You know, we can get to a place even in our Christian life where all we want to do is absorb more and more of the Bible And if somebody was to give us a Bible quiz or a Bible test or whatever, we could come up with all the right answers. We're we're very good even as as Christians in, and and I'm not saying not to, but we come to church and we absorb knowledge and we get more understanding and we're part of Bible studies and it's all about accumulating facts and knowledge and understanding. And we can give people all the right answers. But folks... If there's a deficiency in our heart, if our heart isn't aligned with God, then it doesn't matter how much knowledge we have in our head. We've got to have both. We've got to have a balance of head and heart. You can't have an out-of-balance relationship with God. We've got to be growing in our knowledge and in heart when it comes to relating to God. And here's a great example from Scripture of someone who was able to give Jesus correct answers but still did not have eternal life. Because it wasn't a matter of his head. It had to do with a deficiency in his heart. Nicole is our worship leader and I as the pastor of this church. We're very intentional 
And we strive every week on Wednesdays and Sundays to make sure that through the worship and through our teaching of the word that we are hitting your head and your heart. It does us no good here at the church and for any of us who are leading anything to try to just fill people's heads but not touch their hearts. And just the opposite of that, to be touching their hearts but not their head. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. And you'll see then in verse 29, the expert wanting to justify himself. So we know now because of the Lord being involved here what the motive is. He wants to show that he is good enough. In fact, I want to take you back to something that he said in his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I do. Doesn't that remind you of a little child? Mommy, Daddy, I do. I'm trying to help you. No, I do. We, we are born with that innate sense of independence and of wanting to do things ourselves. And we don't want help, even when it's offered. And that's why then, in this context, Jesus being God and knowing the deficiency of this man's heart he shares the story of the Good Samaritan. And can I say at this point to all of us, this is why it is absolutely essential that you and I study the Word of God in its context. Because this is a great example from Scripture of people who have pulled out of its context the story of the Good Samaritan. And over the years, whether it's been in their own lives or in the life of the ministry of their local church, they have used this primarily as a proof text for the social gospel. That we as Christians are to be out there just doing good all the time in our communities. And that's primarily what God has called us to, to be good Samaritans to others. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do good things. And that we should not do good works. But that has nothing to do with why Jesus shared the story of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> he shared the story of the Good Samaritan in this context because he wanted to use it to show this man, even though he was a theology professor and he had all the right answers, that there was still a deficiency in this man's heart that was preventing him from obtaining eternal life. And it goes back to the thing that he must do that he hasn't done yet. So you know the story. Jesus replied, or the, the expert wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? <laughs> and in that question, the, the theology professor's like, I, I believe that probably the definition of who my neighbor is is probably pretty narrow. So once Jesus gives this to me, I can go thumbs up. Yeah, I've done that. I'm good, right? Jesus is going to show him, oh no, my definition of who your neighbor is and what the word of God says your neighbor is is much wider than what you think and you haven't gotten there yet. Which is why Jesus strategically uses a Samaritan as sort of the hero of the story. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Follow along. 
Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. By the way, this theology professor would have revered a priest. He would have put him up on a pedestal, right? And so the priest goes by, but when he sees the injured man, he passes by on the other side. Doesn't help him at all. Then a Levite, who again, this theology professor would have had great esteem for, does the same thing. He sees the injured man, passes by on the other side. But then Jesus said, ah, a Samaritan who was traveling down this road came upon the injured man, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. Why does Jesus use the Samaritan? Because this theology professor, being who he was, would have hated Samaritans, despised them. I I can't begin to tell you. how this theology professor would have looked down his nose at this Samaritan. See what Jesus is doing? You think you love your neighbor as yourself, right? You you think you've checked all the boxes, right? He went up to him, verse 34, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put put him on an animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. I mean, from beginning to end, this man meets every need that this injured man had. The next day, he takes out two silver coins, gives them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever else you you spend, I'll repay when I come back. And Jesus then says to the theology professor, which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Notice by that question, Jesus says, one cannot truly define one's neighbor, one can only be a neighbor. Because when we start trying to define who our neighbor is in order to check off a box, That's never going to work because in Jesus' mind, everybody that we come in contact with who has a need could be our neighbor. It's not a matter of defining who our neighbor is. It's just a matter of are we going to be a neighbor to those that we come in contact with. And notice the expert in religious law says, and notice something in verse 37, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. That's how much he despises Samaritans. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan's the hero of the story. He says, the one who showed mercy to him. The one who demonstrated compassion. The one who had a heart of God for this man. That's who. And notice what Jesus then says to him again. Then go and do this. Do it. And why does Jesus do that? Because he knows this man's not doing it and can't do it on his own. It's impossible. None of us can perfectly and without fail live up to loving God the way we should each and every moment of the day and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the whole point of this whole passage is to bring us then to what is the first must that is taught in this passage. It is this. We must come to the end of ourselves and turn to God. We cannot obtain eternal life on our own. It cannot be what must I do 
No, it must be a realization that I can never live up to being perfect and to doing the law of God right all the time and without fail. I can't do that. Therefore, I need to fall upon the mercy of God and cry out, Lord, I can't do it. I need you and what you've done. You see, we cannot experience life with God independent of God. We can't. It's impossible. And this principle is even true for us who already know the Lord. Not only can we never obtain eternal life as long as we think we can be good enough, we can do enough good works. Uh, you know, I, I've run into so many people in my lifetime, even in church, who say, you know, I just hope that when I die and I get up there and God puts all my life on a, you know, balance that, that my good works will outweigh my bad works and that somehow he'll let me in. Folks, that's not the way to obtain eternal life. The way to obtain eternal life is to realize I can never measure up. And that's the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place and died in our place on the cross. It was so we wouldn't have to try to measure up to a standard we can never measure up to. It's so that we can accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ and be forgiven of our sin and be placed into a right relationship with God, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his righteousness. We must come to the end of ourselves and turn to God. And I say that that principle holds true even for us who already know the Lord because sometimes in our life, we're still trying to overcome something or gain victory over something in our life, and we're still, I do. And we still keep struggling with the same thing over and over again, and we can never seem to get past it. We can never seem to get beyond it. We can never seem to, to overcome it and gain victory. And it's because of this very attitude we're trying to do it on our own instead of coming to the end of ourselves and saying, I cannot do this, God. I need you. I need you. That's the first must. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritans in the Bible, trying to show this theology professor, you can't do it. You can give me all the right answers, but you can't do it. And you're not willing in your pride to admit you can't do it. You're not humble enough yet to admit you can't do it. And that's why Jesus keeps saying, go, do it. Hopefully you'll see you can't. And you'll come to the end of yourself someday and you'll turn to God. But notice, in this story, in the story we're about to share, there's no resolution, which can I tell you, for some of us who are, we're resolvers, we want things to be resolved, it's just hanging there. There is no resolution, at least as far as the Bible. We don't know how this theology professor reacted. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know whether he ever got to the end of himself and turned to God. We don't know. God just left it sort of hanging out there. 
and he goes away from Jesus, not knowing whether we'll ever see this man in heaven or not. Did he get to the end of himself and turn to God, or did he try all his life to be good enough? We don't know. We don't know. But the first must that all of us need to be reminded of is that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot experience abundant life and eternal life independent of God. It's got to be God, I can't, not I do. God, I need you. Which leads to the second story in our passage, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make, so she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. I wanted to read the whole passage because I think sometimes we even, we know this passage and, and we may have a little bit of a misunderstanding of this passage in this sense. Jesus here, first of all, is not teaching that service and ministry and activity is wrong. He's not saying that at all. He's teaching here a matter of priorities. He's not questioning Martha's activity. He's questioning her attitude while she's doing her activity. That's what this passage is all about. Now, a couple things before we even get into it a little bit closer. First of all, this passage should be an encouragement to all the gals here today. Because this passage, again, once again in the Bible illustrates that Jesus met women and allowed women to be part of his ministry and his life more than any up to that point. This was unheard of. In Jesus' day, someone like him, a, a rabbi, a teacher, a mentor, someone who had that kind of spiritual status that Jesus had, even if people didn't believe he was the Son of God or the Messiah, even to hold that position that he did, it was unheard of to allow women the kind of access that Jesus allowed women to have when he was here on earth. Unheard of. You would have never seen this with other rabbis or other teachers of the law. They would have never allowed women not only to be a part of their group, much less to sit at their feet and to be equal there with the men in the house at that time. It shows us once again that wherever Jesus went, he elevated women, just like he elevated the value of children everywhere he went. In fact, that's what Jesus does with all of us. When we follow him, he elevates the value that God places on every human being, including everyone present here in these seats and those of you who are watching live stream this morning from your home. But as you get into it, you, you'll notice something. 
First of all, let's note in verse 39 where Martha was. She had placed herself near Jesus, as close to him as she could possibly get, at his feet. And then it says she was there not just to sit, but to listen. I mean, and to be attentive, to, to, to catch every word, to be focused upon everything that came out of Jesus' mouth. Again, not just to fill her head with what he said, but to have the things that Jesus was saying also affect and impact her heart, head and heart. And by the fact that she was at the feet of Jesus, also even positionally uh, and, and by her posture shows that, that there is a, a humility there, that there is a, a submissiveness there, that whatever Jesus says, it, it's not just that I'm going to take it in, but I'm going to try to apply it or I'm going to try to do it because I realize I am in the presence of one greater than myself and that he knows better than I do. And so whatever comes out of his mouth, I'm not just going to listen to as far as being able to hear it with my physical ear, but I'm going to allow it to affect my heart so that it can also affect my life. That's the posture of Mary here, right? You see a different posture with her sister Martha. Martha, it says in verse 40, is so busy and so burdened, taking care of trying to get, you know, a meal or some snacks or, you know, maybe she's making a first century version of a charcuterie board. I don't know, you know. But man, is she busy in the kitchen, right? She is making sure that, that Jesus and everyone there has got all that they need, all the food and drink. And again, nothing wrong with that. To a point. But then notice, she gets so frustrated that she's out there slaving away in the kitchen, doing it all by herself, and nobody is helping her, including her sister. And you can just see it, right? The veins are starting to pop out in her neck. And man, she's getting that look on her face, and you can just probably just, you can see it, right? She is stomping into that room where Jesus is, and there's probably, you know, steam coming out of the nostrils. And she makes a demand on Jesus. And by the way, a demand that she believes I, with all her heart, he's going to side with her. He, she said, Lord, you need to tell my sister to help me. Because don't you care that I'm out there doing all this by myself? Can you imagine? Because what do you think Martha thought whenever Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, Mary, get out there? No. He tenderly speaks her name twice. Says, oh, Martha, Martha, you are worried. That word in the Greek means distracted. And the word troubled can also be defined or translated as disturbed about many things. But one thing 
is a must. You see, with this remark, Jesus is setting priorities. He's not saying that serving and ministry and being active and all of that is not important. It's biblical. Jesus is simply saying, but Martha, the quality of your service is tanking. And the attitude that you're doing your service in my name for is bad because you didn't first do what you and I all must do. And that is that the, the other must in this passage is we must place ourselves at the feet of Jesus and listen to him first. Then our service, our ministry, our life will be of a higher quality. And the attitude with which we do everything with in Jesus' name will be a much better attitude when we first do what we must do. And that is make sure that we are pursuing the presence of Jesus and that we are placing ourselves continually at his feet and listening to what he says to us first. It's not that Martha was this great servant and Mary was lazy. It is that Mary understood this principle that when I do get up to serve, I will be in a much better place and I will be able to do things at a higher and greater level by first sitting at the feet of Jesus because I have learned that my life and my ministry and my service needs to be out of the overflow of my time with Jesus and that I got to start there and then work from there. Martha had not learned that principle yet. Martha was still trying to do all this ministry and service without first doing what she must do, which is sitting at the feet of Jesus first and listening to him. And that's where Jesus then goes on to say in verse 40 or 41 and 42, Mary has chosen the best part. And notice something. This then brings it even back on us. Because the word choice here speaks about a very highly deliberate and intentional choice. And it's not only a choice that Mary had to make. It's a choice that you and I have to make every day, every week, every month every year that goes by of our earthly life. Are we going to be more like Martha, trying to live our life and minister and serve even for Jesus on the fumes of our relationship with God? Are we finally going to build our lives around a few musts? I cannot do this on my own. I have to come to the end of myself and turn to God and I must place myself near the Lord in his presence and listen to him continually. Those are the musts of life. 
And once I get those down, then everything else will start falling in its proper place. In a sense, these two musts sort of fill in a little bit of the gaps of the phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will be added or settled in their proper place. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? It means, first of all, I must come to the end of myself Stop trying to do it on my own, whatever it is, and turn to God and say, God, I can't, but I know that I can through you. You got to help me. I need you, God. And then seeking first the kingdom of God is also not being inactive, not being a servant, not ministering, not doing life and being active, just the opposite. It is being a full-time minister, a full-time servant of the Lord, but doing it first out of the must of sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening for what he has for me. But it's a choice. It's a choice. A choice that all of us have to make. And just like the former story, it just hangs there, doesn't it? There's no resolution. We don't know. The, the Bible doesn't go on and tell us, what does Martha do with that? We don't know. We don't know how it all ended. Did Martha go, oh, Lord, you are so right. I'm right here. I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing out there, and I'm going to come and sit here. We don't know. And I think there's a reason why these two stories have no resolution. They just sort of hang there because you and I are now in that same place. Whether you're watching from your homes this morning or whether you're here in this auditorium, things are just hanging there right now, right? Because each of us has to make that choice. And what is that choice going to be? And how is that choice or lack of that choice then going to impact the rest of our life? Because in a sense, we can even make a choice today, but what about tomorrow? And what about the next day? And the next day? And the next week? And the next month? And the next year? Where is it going to all end? We don't know. Because it's just going to hang there because you and I have to deliberately and intentionally make that choice continually throughout our life. So we don't know how it's all going to end. But we know this. We know that the destiny of our lives is determined by the choices and decisions that we make throughout our life. And so everyone here who's listening to me this morning, the destiny of where we all end up is going to be based on these very critical choices and decisions that you and I are left to make, that God entrusts us to make with our life. So you and I have to ask at this point, what's it going to be? Because it's just hanging there. What's our choice going to be? And Jesus says to Martha, this is not going to be taken away from Mary because she's chosen what's right. In other words, Jesus saying, I'm not going to order her to leave my feet and go serve you. I'm not going to take that away from her because what she's choosing 
is the best thing. But it's up to you, Martha. Now you've got a choice to make. And we don't know what that choice is. Folks, even as, I, as late as driving down here this morning, I just kept asking the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to end today? What do you want me to do with our time of worship in the word today? And I clearly heard God say, this is what I want you to do today. I want you to give him that choice <laughs> in this way. Look, I know that all of us could be right now making choices and maybe making choices through our worship time that's coming in just a second. And you can make a choice right where you are, absolutely. But sometimes we need a little bit more, I don't know, accountability maybe is the word or, or just something to seal that that's going to keep us a little bit more to following through with it. Because you and I can make choices in places like this auditorium and we can walk out the door and go right back to the way we were. We know that's true. So here's what God asked of me today. He said, I want you to bring this before the people. If any of you are making a choice today and you would like to sort of Seal that choice a little bit more in your life so that you're reminding yourself, oh, yeah, I went forward and made that choice in front of not only God, but in front of God's people at the Oasis that Sunday to just sort of keep you on track with that choice. God said, that's what I want you to do. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand in just a moment. I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come and get set. And we're going to go through our time of worship. But as we do, you can make a decision right there and not move. And that, that might be fine. That might be what God wants you to do. But maybe the choice that you want to make today is to make that choice. And just by coming forward, you're not sharing what that choice is with everyone here. That's between you and God. But what you are saying is, whatever choice I'm making, I want to make it before God's people as witnesses so that that might keep me more on track to follow through with what that choice is in my life today. So would you stand? And as you stand and close your eyes in prayer, the worship team's going to come, and I'm just going to close us in prayer this morning. Father, all of us, Lord, have a choice right now. Lord, even not making a choice, we're making a choice. So all of us are going to be making choices right now, decisions in our heart and in our head. And Lord, I, I pray today that through the experience of our worship and through our experience of your word today, God, that we'll make the best choice, just like Mary. Because Lord, many times in our life, it's not making choices between what's bad and good. That's pretty easy, pretty self-evident. Many times it's between making choices of what's better and what's best. So, Lord, help us to choose what's best today. Not only for us, but for your glory and honor and for other people's blessing and benefit. Help us to make the best choice. And, Lord, maybe for those here today or those who are watching from their home this morning, 
I actually hope that some of them have gotten to the end of themselves. That, that they have struggled so long with something that they've tried to do on their own. And they're finally at a point in their life where they say they're throwing their hands up and they're saying, I can't do this. But God, I know that you can help me. And they're going to turn to you, God, today. Maybe that's the choice. Whatever it is, God, I pray that you would use our time of worship today to seal whatever those choices and decisions are in our life today. And that we would be more devoted to you leaving your house than what we were when we all came in. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.